Welcome in again. I'm Alexis, hosting the Live to Sustain podcast run by students in the Central Valley. Today, we'll be planting some seeds of knowledge with our guest, Andrew Glicken, who is a local farmer focused on sustainable practices. How are you today? Doing great. (laughs) Within the context, yes. Right. So within this context, have you learned anything new at home, some new hobbies while we're at home all this time? Farmers don't typically have time for (laughs) external hobbies. Um, We're learning how to farm uh, more systematically and efficiently with two uh, children under the age of uh, six, um, while also maintaining uh, a highly diversified uh, small farm. So that's, I think that's my new uh, learning curve on a daily basis. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, What's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say the word sustainability? That's a fun question. We actually just got asked that by some Patagonia reps the other day. Um, you know, to me, sustainability can be defined um, through whatever lens uh, you're operating under. Uh, so there, there are multiple definitions um, and each person, you know, kind of holds a special uh, definition for sustainability in their, their heart. Uh, for me personally, uh, Sustainability centers around um, climate change action, uh, whether that's methodology and whatever you are doing or, or your practices, so to speak. Um, uh, so that, to me, low carbon footprint, um, small local food system um, are two of the big, big things that help me define what sustainability is. And if you haven't noticed, I hesitate to truly define it <laughs> because of that ambiguity. Yeah, I, I hope, hopefully that uh, is good. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think sustainability is a personal definition. I don't think it's a book definition. Everyone has their own term for what it means. Even financial people say sustainability and it right. means something completely different. So, yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what are the sustainable practices you do on the farm and why do you think they're important to keep? Um, uh, we have a, uh, there's a, a few core uh, beliefs or methodologies that we practice. Uh, the, the, the two top ones are, are most important, at least to, to us, uh, is being a no-till farm um, and a no-spray farm. Uh, what that entails is that we aren't um, turning our soil structure over every time we put a new crop in. Uh, So coming back to that, how I define sustainability, we're promoting ecological diversity uh, in and out of the soil um, through that practice. Uh, We're also helping to sequester carbon, um, uh, you know, by not turning the soil over, you know, plants obviously um, through photosynthesis store carbon in many ways. And, that I think is when we define ourselves to people or we tell people what we are, that's, that is like who we are, you know, it's all we are really. Uh, and then the no spray um, goes hand in hand where we are through no till process or methodology, we are promoting um, ecological diversity. And if we were to start spraying uh, for pests, uh, we would basically be shooting ourselves in the foot. It, it would make the no till, it would negate the no till. Um, so those those two things uh, are really uh, what we really like to talk about um, 
in terms of who we are and how we practice sustainability. Uh, we also uh, utilize low water um, methods, basically drip irrigation and high efficiency sprinklers to irrigate our crops um, at night, not during the day. Uh, and um, each year that we are no-till, we are increasing our soil's ability to hold water. So we're using less and less water almost every year uh, on an on a average basis. And then the last one that we used to talk about a lot that we actually don't talk about too much anymore because most folks um, kind of goes without saying that we're a local farm. We don't deliver uh, outside of, well, we started by saying we don't deliver outside of 100 miles um, from our farm, which to us was a huge selling point. And then as we started crunching numbers and seeing who our customer base was, we actually don't go outside 60 miles, which is even better uh, to us and I'm sure to a lot of other folks. So we have kind of a low carbon footprint on, on, on that in that regard. Yeah, I'd say those are like yeah. the top four things that really define us. Yeah, awesome. So you started your farm out here coming from the Northeast, right? Yeah, we, we did our first farm when we were in graduate school, we learned in a, on a farm on the East coast. Um, and that was eye opening. And we've, we've since worked and seen other farms uh, over the years, but yeah, that was the first. Have you noticed any big differences between farming practices here and there? <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> the East coast is, um, well, one, they have more water. Uh, so a right. lot of uh, the farm we learned on really didn't have much drip irrigation. Uh, they relied on rain um, they had a few sprinklers and a couple drip systems, but very low key, very small, not as large as we are. You know, we have a three acre uh, drip irrigation system. Um, and I'd say that's the biggest thing. Uh, the second is that their season, their grow season is a lot shorter, obviously. You know, their last frost date is like early May sometimes, um, depending on where you are, obviously. And then, you know, first frost. Uh, or that was last frost, yeah. And then first frost is you know, somewhere in the September, early October range. Whereas we can farm here in Kathy's Valley, even at a thousand elevation, a uh, thousand feet, uh, we can farm from, oh, well, we can farm year round, especially with our tunnels, but we uh, can produce outside the tunnels almost till mid November. And we start putting seeds in the ground outside in early February. So it's different prep, yeah. You're right, and even when you're in the Central Valley, you know, that's not existing. You can plant year-round. Um, so we have like a month and a half off up here, but on the East Coast, you have like three, four months off, you know, which a little bit more vacation time. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then just Kathy's Valley's hot, you know, Central Valley's hot. So, you know, we're 100 degrees every day in the summer, and on the East Coast, it's 80 89, you know, 60, 70, 80% humidity. So a little bit different um, management, pest management and water management there. Yeah. So a little fun hypothetical, but <laughs> if you were to win jackpot lottery, what would be the first thing you buy for the farm? First thing I buy? Um well, looking at the future models of uh, atmospheric rivers, or ARs as they're called, um, and how they are going to increase in severity uh, in terms of how much rain is uh, 
delivered or dropped uh, per per storm. Um, one of the big things on our mind is um, catching that water uh, and not letting runoff happen. Um, and I know that the state has a bunch of new plans that they're trying to implement, but here locally and on a micro scale, we'd love to put in, um, have the resources to hire people and to help us uh, work side by side and the materials to put in berms and water tanks and pump systems to basically take runoff and save it for a non-rainy day <laughs> and uh, be able to use that in the middle of the summer when we have, when we're relying on our well to pump water. Um, uh, you know, that way we're reducing the stress on the, the landscape and the, the aquifer or the groundwater. Um, I think that'd be one of the main things that we really would invest in. Uh, it'd be one of the more expensive. Um, I think another thing we'd love to do is put more hedgerows in. Uh, we, we utilize um, native hedgerows to bring in pollinators and uh, invertebrates, invertebrates actually too, um, to help maintain that, that pest management system. Um, and head plants are expensive, you know, if you're trying to get large, um, aged plants, you know, such as manzanita or willow or whatever have you, or pensamen, um, you know, they can be five, 10, 20, hundred dollars a pot. And that adds up when you're putting in a 300 foot hedgerow. Um, we've put in one already and that was a few thousand dollars. So that would be nice <laughs> to have money for that. Um, what else? I'm sure there's, oh, you know, and, and Lauren and I, um, when we first began farming, we actually wanted to develop a, an educational school, um, a private school centered around sustainability, um, teaching um, living off the land skills and uh, self-preservation, so to speak, um, through kind of the lens of farming. And we found that uh, that was quite expensive to, to start. Um, and so it's still in the back of our mind of as, as to like that we'd like to do it and implement it one day um, we just but funding is the limiting factor there um, and time so being able to hire people and get insurance and things like that uh, be really cool to help promote the next generation of farmers small-scale farmers yeah that would even be fun you know fellowship for college students too Keep right in mind. Yeah. <laughs> we we do have an internship program now where we run one intern a year to teach them the full cycle um, but we would love to expand that to, you know, multiple interns and um, multiple students. Uh, but it's just, again, it's a financial burden on us to take care of that, <laughs> to, to provide that system. Yeah. So what's the most difficult and the easiest crop that you grow? That's, that's loaded. Uh, <laughs> I guess it depends on the time of year. I'm quoted for saying it depends because I, I, <laughs> I use the word a lot, um, but it does depend, uh, you know, in the summertime, obviously our greens, our spinach, our lettuce mix, our arugula, um, even our radishes, um, our beets, uh, they're really hard to uh, keep looking good through the heat of the summer. Um, and that's one of the hardest things we, we deal with um, summertime. Um, in the winter, it's it's slugs. I think that's a pretty common common thing with with most farms. Is you know when it gets really wet, you get those snails and slugs in. Um, 
which are balancing themselves out as the years go on here in terms of their predators that eat them. But uh, I think what an interesting dilemma we have is on the shoulder seasons when it's a little, it's not as hot or it's a little too cool on both spring and fall is um, providing those warm season crops, um, you know, tomatoes in the fall and, and strawberries or such in the, in the early spring. Um, yeah, again, it just depends. I wouldn't say anything's, there are crops that are definitely easier, um, but as to the difficulty for some crops, <laughs> it's, it just varies. So, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's interesting though. Yeah. Um, what? I'm sure that's not a, a, a typical answer that most farmers give. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're growing between 80 and 100 uh or even more than a hundred varietals of, of vegetables and fruit every year. And we do a lot of interplanting. And so a lot of the complexities and um, issues I think most farms have when they're doing a mono or a, a dual crop um, system, or even like a 10 crop system, um, we don't really have because we're, our plants are working together. And so we typically don't find ourselves struggling a lot of the ways that other uh, regular standard farms you know have you know, we're, we're definitely very different on a lot of levels yeah definitely and with bringing in the sustainable practices too right so, um, <laughs> what which one of your uh, crops that you grow is in highest demand at the moment um, our strawberries tend to be uh, they usually sell out you know at each market that we go to um, we kind of, we don't pump them full of a lot of water. And so they're really, they're good size, you know, quarter size. Um, but they tend to just be flavorful, sweet. Um, and like a lot of crops that get sprayed, strawberries being one of them, um, you know, ours aren't. So, you know, people definitely love that uh, about them. Uh, and, you know, they love that they can just eat them right there as soon as they get them and know that we picked them, you know, that night right before market. Uh, and then uh, our tomatoes are highly sought after, our heirlooms especially. And then um, we definitely grow different types of cantaloupes uh, and, and melons um, that people can't wait for. And sweet corn. Not not many farmers are growing sweet corn anymore because it's not profitable and it destroys your soil <laughs> in terms of nutrients. Um, but we have found a way to grow it in congruence with the no-till method um, so as to not completely deplete the soil. Um, and we grow all kinds of wild varieties of sweet corn that people have never had and whether they're SEs or SH2s or um, you know which are different varieties of sweet corn. Uh, yeah variety and aesthetic yeah. keeps people coming yeah it's hard to say what really sells best because we have such a variety that um you know we have so many different customers that each sell oh you know we pretty much sell out every market um <laughs> it's the kale and chard that don't sell out <laughs> but everything else does for the most part so what is a csa and why is it important to have one uh, a CSA is, uh, it stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, it's been around for, the, the model has been around for at least 40 years that I know of. Um, it, I'm sure it's been around longer and under a different title, but uh, 
um, I think the current way that it's run, um, you know, again, at least to the best of my knowledge, uh, is pretty old. Um, and I'm, I'm pretty sure it originated uh, because of the fact that um, members of a CSA pay an upfront price, which is usually in the 100, 200, 300, probably up to $700, depending on the farm range. Uh, and when you have 50, 60, 100, 200 members, that's a huge cash infusion into the farm all at once. And that allows the farm to operate um, easily uh, without having to worry if that product is going to sell. Like, you know, when a, when a farmer, let's say, puts in uh, corn and they hope to move, you know, 50 acres of corn, you know, they don't know exactly what price they may get or they may not necessarily know if they'll move at all, if the demand will be there. Um, and that could, that's nerve wracking as a farmer to not know if you're going to have that, that capital to, to sustain yourself uh, financially. And so the, the CSA model um, really alleviates a lot of that pressure, uh, especially as you get larger and larger, it's more, you know, more and more money. And money is what makes a farm go around. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I think that, I, you know, and I, I think the other aspect of a CSA that's probably more important than the financial aspect um, is that it's feeding your, your local community uh, with that, without that high carbon footprint of trucking the food across the country, you know, and, and so you really have a, a, a chance to nourish uh, your community um, through your healthy growing practices. Uh, and I, you know, depending on each community, you know, the, those needs vary. And so I think that the CSA model allows a farmer in that community to address whatever that may be, you know, which I think is pretty cool. Especially even now with um, all the market changes and demand that is fluctuating now and you don't know what's going to happen with your crops, you have to plant now. And we're seeing right. even more now the importance of a localized food supply chain and because of everything we see on the news of having to, you know, throw away so much produce yeah. because the supply chain isn't working anymore. So yeah, definitely localizing. Yeah. Yeah. I saw those pictures of the Idaho farmers with their, their piles of potatoes. I, I don't know if it was a real pic, you know, like a legitimate picture, but it's, I mean, who, who just piles potatoes for, cause <laughs> they can't sell them. Uh, but yeah, that was just like, that was heartbreaking to me to see like all that work just down the drain um, because they couldn't move it because they couldn't ship it because of the demand. Um, you know, that's just, that sucks for that farm. Yeah, I had to, I had to throw that in there. I'm currently working on a project this summer, a research project on the effects that the pandemic has had on the food supply chain. Mm -hmm. So I, I had to throw that in there. That's fine. You know, it's, it, it, it it's good for us. I, business has been good this year. And for all the small farms that I know the, who are friends and acquaintances and or just, you know, like Instagram um, <laughs> companions, if you want to call them that, uh, I haven't heard one iota of any complaints um, during this pandemic in terms of um, being able to move and sell their, their, their produce. Uh, because I think people have noticed the importance in that local food system and 
um, especially at least for with our farm, we deliver our CSA, which isn't very normal. We go door to door. And I think that was a huge selling point um, for a lot of our customers who were either had pre-existing conditions or just nervous about the whole situation. And we were happy to take that on and be safe ourselves while also feeding people. Yeah, that's that's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Opposite, contrary from uh, other articles and news out there at the moment. So that's good. There, there is hope out there. Yeah. <laughs> so any lasting advice as a parent and a farmer on how other parents can get their kids interested in farming and food supply chains and living off the land type practices? Um, you know, as a, an outdoor educator, I was actually where Lauren and my wife and I started was teaching outdoor ed. Um, I think one of the most important things to remember as a parent is to, to start small and, and really nourish the, the intrigue and the inquiry and the, just the, the inherent um, curiosity around the power of a seed. Um, to not get caught up in the production aspect or the like quantities or the um, we must grow this to, to eat, you know, because which a lot of people fall into and they lose that magical component of so much comes from this little tiny seed uh, that can nourish us. Um, and so seeds and water and sun, you know, the basics uh, are really important to instill in children. And I think from there, at least with our kids, we've seen that um, that's where we started. And now they've grown into wanting to go to the markets and sell it. They wanted to, they love seeing the, the biodiversity out in the field, you know, like they'll still sit and stare at a flower that has like 13 different parasitic wasps on it, you know, and, and that's like their television <laughs> uh, or, you know, finding a praying mantis and following it as it moves through the strawberries, you know, and watching it, you know, those are like kind of little magic miracles um, that I think parents should focus on. Uh, and just start with a small box. One box is all you need. You don't need, you know, a hundred foot row or anything like that. If you're not killing things with sprays and the like, you know, you, you should find a lot of magic out there. Uh, plant the seed early, I guess. <laughs> Get it started early. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> literally all right thank you for talking with us and thanks to our listeners and as always don't forget to branch out and live sustainably everyone 